This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project that features artists and arts professionals discussing their work, ideas, and lives, offering listeners a forthright and unique understanding about the process, experiences, and people behind the artistic pursuit. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, long-form, and unscripted. Deep Color is supported by The Armory Show as it celebrates its 25th anniversary. The Armory Show is New York City's premier art fair and leading cultural destination for discovering and collecting the world's most important 20th and 21st century art. The fair features presentations by leading international galleries, innovative artist commissions, and dynamic public programs. Since its founding in 1994, The Armory Show has served as a nexus for the art world inspiring dialogue, discovery, and patronage in the visual arts. This episode profiles gallerist Sean Kelly. Sean was born in Britain, trained as an artist, and founded his eponymous gallery in 1991 at 43 Mercer Street, where it established a reputation for diverse, intellectually driven, and unconventional exhibitions. Moving to Chelsea in 2001, the gallery continues to mount ambitious shows and to expand its artist roster in the U.S. and internationally. Kelly was previously curator at the Glyn Vivian Art Gallery and Museum in Swansea, Wales, director of visual arts for the Bath International Arts Festival, and founder and director of ArtSight. This conversation was recorded at the 2019 Armory Show in the Media Lounge on Pier 94. These orchids, strategic, pla- strategic blocking placement. my view, yep. blocking my view. Yep. So we're here to sort of celebrate and talk about the fair's 25th anniversary and its history and how you connect to that history. But before we even get there, I want to talk about your history, mm. uh, uh, particularly your the your professional arc, because I know you've you've worn a few different hats in the world of art. I have. You've been an artist. You're trained as an artist. Yes. Curator, yes. Museum director, yes. Gallerist, yes. Talk about how those all sort of. We don't unf- know what the next one is. Yeah, right. <clears throat> Talk about how those all unfolded, or or introduced each other, and how they connect and disconnect. Well, uh, you know, I always knew I was going to be involved. I always thought I was going to be an artist from the age of about six onwards, and uh, so that was always the thing that I was intending to do. Um, and I, I went to art school and uh, got a degree as a fine artist. Um, and uh, in the third, uh, well, actually, just after I'd got my degree, my favorite lecturer, um, who was, who'd become a personal friend at that point, we, we went to a pub afterwards to celebrate, mm-hmm. a whole bunch of us. And during that <coughs> celebration, my favorite lecturer sort of said to me, uh, you know, I think you're a really good artist, but I think you'd be an extraordinary art dealer. And I was so offended. It was, of course, the last thing a young artist ever wants to hear, right. uh, especially when you've just spent four years getting a degree. What were you making? What were you, what, what I was making work that was very much based in, it was process-based, so it was using a lot of processes like, like uh, printmaking, but I was making conceptual work that broke the, the, the mold of the printmaking. And, and I was so offended by this comment that he and I weren't friends for quite some years. And then we, we had a rapprochement. And, and it was good because it turned out that I think he was right. I, I, was, I hope I'm probably a better art dealer than I would have been an artist. I'd have sunk into ignominy as, as an artist. And I'm, I haven't quite sunk into ignominy yet as a dealer. So. Right. 
well said. Maybe we could go into what you what your first experience is with the Armory show. Do you remember how you first participated? Were you uh, um, a visitor? Were you a gallerist? Yeah, no. I, where I, did you Where do you slide in? I, I went to the first ever Armory show, uh, you know, in the Gramercy Hotel, mm-hmm. and uh, it was kind of insane experience really I couldn't I couldn't quite grasp it because it was so unlike anything I'd really seen up until that point it was so ad hoc but it, it, the energy was absolutely fantastic yeah and I, I remember you know sort of seeing art in baths and showers and on tops of uh, on the top of you know medicine cabinets and on beds and pretty much anywhere you could think of putting an artwork there was an artwork and then people were living in the rooms at night and sort of clearing the art off the bed, getting into bed, and waking up the next morning and starting again. Yeah, one of the rules was you couldn't you couldn't uh, poke holes in the walls, I believe. Yeah, you couldn't install I mean, anything. So you had on to sort of be creative with so how you installed the work. Yeah, you were propping and hanging, you know, in vicarious different manners. And then, um, you know, I, that was purely as a visitor. Um, and then, I think we did the first fair. We did the first time we did the armory is 18 years ago. And we have been coming ever since. As a gallery, you mean? As a gallery. Okay. And, yeah. Uh, so I was a, as a visitor from the beginning, but as a gallery for 18 years. Very good. And at a certain point, you uh, were invited to be on the selection committee. So that was another role that you had with the Armory Show. Yeah. Yeah, I was on the selection committee. Um, Noah Horowitz, who the then director of the fair, who has gone on to run um, Bars on Miami, um, who's become a great friend and um, Noah asked me to come on and I I went on to the committee Um, and I have to say it was at a moment when the armory was uh, suffering. Yeah, it was going through some changes. Quite a lot. It was going through a number of changes and also Freeze had had come into town and had sort of more or less declared that they were going to be the art fair in New York. And I was really taken, I sort of took umbrage at that, frankly, on a personal level, because it was a fair that I felt very strongly about. It had always been very good to me and to the gallery. And I felt it was important for New York. And I felt that it needed some champions. And um, Noah asked me to come on on to the committee. And I took it it on very seriously and um, worked alongside him for a number of years. And he was, you know, he was fantastic and the other committee members. And I think we re, uh, I hope I contributed to, in some small way, to the, the strengthening of, of the armory and the, re, the rebirth of the armory, sure. Phoenix-like from the ashes at that moment. And obviously it's gone on to become an enormous, enormous success and an even stronger brand. So I'm actually very, very proud of of, of my involvement with, with the committee and my colleagues that I served with. I made great friends on the committee. I missed them. I left last year, I came off last year because I felt that really nobody should serve for more than five years. And uh, in my last committee meeting, I was sitting looking around the room and I, I realized there was just a bunch of kind of white guys sitting in the room. Yeah. And I thought this is insane for the 21st century you know, there needs to be diversity, there needs to be gender diversity, there needs to be um, ethnic diversity, there needs to be geographical diversity. And frankly, the only way it's going to happen is, you know, as old fogies who've been here for a while have to go. Yeah, it's kind of a top-down change. Sometimes. Yeah, and I said, you know, I'd asked for previously for the committee to only serve for five years. And I, uh, and I felt like I had to lead by example. So I, I very reluctantly, because I was enjoying it enormously and I loved it, 
and I loved spending the time with my colleagues in July and going through things and taking it very seriously. And very reluctantly, I, I stepped down. Yeah. Let's imagine a, a, a young gallerist is, is listening right now. What sorts of suggestions might you have for someone putting together an application that want to present um, a, a body of work or an artist at, at a fair? What stands out in the application? Be bold. I mean, I mean, first of all, I think, I think, you know, really take the application process very seriously. And you know, there are very uh, easily available tools now to do mock-ups of booths and 3D renderings. Spend a little time actually become become well versed in those. Um, take the process very seriously, but be bold in the application because there are lots of galleries in the world. If you imagine sitting in a room looking at 300 applications in a two-day process, how are you going to stand out from the herd? Put yourself in the committee's position uh, and think about how your application is going to be bold and stand out from the herd and be distinct and be something that the armory feels it absolutely can't live without. Yeah, by my count, you work and represent over 30 artists. Yes. Talk about how you cultivated all those relationships and how you managed those relationships um, and how you support them as artists. Well, they're all very different. I mean, my, I've worked with Rebecca Horn since 1983. Um, I've worked with many of the artists in the program for over 30 years. Uh, and many of those relationships started when I was a curator or a museum director. Um, and some of the relationships are, are newly minted, so they've, they've occurred within the last six weeks mm -hmm. uh, in, in the case of Chris, Mar Chris Martin. They're all very different. I mean, supporting an artist like Marina Abramovich, who's a performance artist, is, it was a very different prospect 30 years ago to supporting uh, a sculptor or, or a printmaker or a filmmaker or a, a painter. Um, and in, in the intervening time, those models have changed enormously. Yeah. And you've been working with Abramovich since 1991. Is that accurate about? Well, uh, pr I mean, publicly since 91, but, um, you know, really since 89. Yeah, talk about meeting her and how that, how that developed. Well, it's a very funny story. It's been told many times in the art world um, by Marina, mainly, and of course, Marina uh, remembers it her, her way. Sure. Um, and, and I, you know, I remember it slightly my way. But it, it's essentially the same story. Um, uh, wonderful artist Julio Sarmento that we work with. Uh, I, I, I knew Marina's work very well. I knew her work with Ulai, her, pre, her partner, uh, her artistic partner, and life partner before that, um, very, very well and had no idea how you could support that body of work in, in the 1980s um, uh, as a, a sort of nascent art dealer. And so was assiduously avoiding meeting her. Ah. So I'd arrive in Paris and you know she'd be leaving or I'd arrive in Berlin and she was arriving and I'd be departing. But I managed to avoid meeting her for many, many years, which was brilliant because I knew Marina by repute and knew that she was very a very magnetic personality and you know, if she walks into a room, everybody in the room and the, and the, and the dog and the cat fall in love with Marina. Right. So I'd managed to avoid that trap for many years. And then eventually, Juliao said uh, he wanted to have a meeting with me and have lunch. And uh, it was in a restaurant in Soho, which is no longer there, sadly. Uh, and uh, this is 30 years, exactly 30 years ago. And um, so I was sitting having a perfectly pleasant lunch with him, which didn't seem to have any point, frankly. Um, until we got to the coffee course and there was a tap on my shoulder and Marina turned up and I realized in that split second 
two things. A, I'd been set up uh-huh. by, by Juliao and Marina, which I had been, and B, I probably, you know, I was going to end up working with her for the rest of my life. And, you know, we've worked together ever, ever since, and we've become great friends and, and I think achieved some extraordinary things in the course of that relationship. That's wonderful. Have you ever gotten into a staring contest with her? I did. I, I, I sat down. You did? I, I sat at down MoMA. several times opposite her at MoMA. And, uh, uh, and it was very, very difficult, actually. I have to say, knowing her as well as I do, um, to sit and stare into her eyes for a long period of time, I found it extremely challenging because, uh, you know, it was just like a lot of things were flashing. Yeah, I imagine the emotional gravity of that moment was... Yeah, completely it was, overwhelming. It was very intense, I, and I, I loved the fact that over the course of that three and a half months, you know, every uh, everybody from old age pensioners to children sat and and looked at, uh, and spent time with Marina, and many of them had a deeply emotional response to it, and I totally understood why, because it was it was it was very intense to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing of note I think is important to talk about is is your gallery is a family business. Your very children were so. you. Talk about that. Well, I mean, I think it starts with, I mean, I, I like to think that the gallery is a family business because if you, you know, my wife and I have been together for 47 years and some of the artists have been in the gallery for over 30 years. Um, and those two statistics alone um, outlast quite a lot of marriages that I've known in my <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah. Uh, but, but it is truly a family business because my, my, my son and my daughter uh, are both in the business. My my daughter, who's the eldest, Lauren, has been. Uh, we've worked together for 12 years, and my son uh, has been in the gallery for seven years. And you know, of course, they grew up around the artists, so they know the artists very well. And it is very much a family business. It's very family orientated in, in terms of its thinking and and how we deal with people. And I like to think that it also extends to our clients, many of whom we've worked with for for two three decades. Yeah. You know, if you think of the contemporary art world and its landscape and the galleries within it, where does your gallery fit within that landscape? What's oh, your niche? I, I, I think you have to ask somebody else that question. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't think I could possibly, I don't think I could possibly answer that other than to say that, uh, you know, I have, I, have a, I have dealers that I greatly admire and I would love to think that I could ever aspire to be as important and consequential and um, substantive as a dealer like sure. Paula Cooper. Sure, understood. Uh, you know, going back to all the, the, the different hats that you wore in the beginning, mm. artist, curator, museum director, now yeah. gallerist, are there ever moments uh, where you feel like you have to ignore those those histories or those voices no, as an art dealer? No, not they, at all. They all not, come into never. play? Never. I think they're all, I think they're all the most perfect training. I, I do, you know, there there is uh, I, I think it's an important question and, and it needs a, a suitably important answer because I, I know a lot of a number of uh, really great dealers who were trained as artists and good curators, great curators who are trained as artists. I think being trained as an artist gives you a huge advantage. Um, and I think that having been trained as a curator and a museum person has given me a great advantage. And it was an advantage that when I moved to America 30 years ago, 1988-89, and went from the public sector to the private sector, it was unheard of at that time. And I remember Nick Sirota, you know, the director of the Tate, who's an extraordinary uh, genius and, and role model, 
said to me, you know, are you sure you want to do this? They may not let you back. And, and I sort of very cheekily said, well, I might not want to come back. And it's proven to be the case. Um, but I think it was the most perfect training for, for being a dealer and having to wear so many hats. Perhaps you've heard this quote before, but I think the writer Dave Hickey said, uh, if you can't sell a handful of air, you have no business being an art dealer. And that's my setup to sort of ask about the magic of selling art. Can mm. you talk about your process or the sorts of, uh, of conversations that you have around educating a collector about uh, a work they might be interested in? Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, Dave is an old friend, and I think Dave was thinking about Marcel Duchamp in, in that quote, because Marcel Duchamp at one point was... Uh, pretty much earning his living selling brancusis and representing brancusi and of course made a wonderful sculpture air de paris which was uh, you know an ampule a glass ampule with air of paris inside it and managed to sell that to a museum so he's my guiding star and, 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 and leading principal but i think you just you used a word which we use at the gallery all the time that is really our mantra and that is it's about education. It's about educating the collector to understand the work, to understand the aims and objectives of the artists, and uh, hopefully to, to entrance them and entice them and engage them enough that they want that work to enter their life and become part of the fabric of their lives. And I don't think that it is about selling, I think it's about education, yeah. I really do. And actually, I, I, I think I have a sort of rather perverse position with regard to selling. I don't try to sell art. I like to show it and I like to live with it and I like to talk about it. And um, strangely enough, people buy it from me. Yeah, I can imagine there's some parallels in the studio for artists too. If you try and make art, it sometimes doesn't happen. You almost have to distract yourself from it or something like this. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, there is nothing more terrifying for an artist and I think probably a, a writer than sitting down in front of a blank sheet of paper with a pencil and having to start creating. And um, I think you have to have mechanisms by which you trick yourself into the moment. And I think that uh, great dealers, and I was fortunate enough to work with a number of them, have been in my life. I shared an artist with Leo Castelli at the end of his life and have worked with many of them. And, and to me, they were always extraordinarily brilliant and elegant um, about the way that they talked and, and, and referenced work and really didn't try to sell it. I always felt that they were imparting great wisdom to me and educating me. And I think uh, I've tried to emulate that sure. example. Sure. Let's talk about uh, your approach when you're presenting um, an artist or a group of work at a fair versus in your gallery space. What are your strategies for, for presenting at a fair? Um, what are your strategies for presenting at a gallery? Do they, do they share any commonalities or are they no, two different they're, they're beasts? Totally, they're totally different. Um, at the gallery, we always want, obviously we're normally working with one or two artists at a time. In, in the gallery, we always want the artist to make the most intense, the most personal, the most crazy project that they can, that they can imagine at that moment in their career and trajectory that they want to make. And we always want to try and go the distance to make that project possible. Uh, and it is, it's a very concentrated kind of intimate process. When you're thinking about a booth for an art fair, it is a completely different skill set. And it is something that uh, probably wasn't very good at at the beginning, mm -hmm. um, and we've tried to become better at. 
I've had some very, very good advice from art fair directors along the way. Um, Noah, I mentioned earlier, uh, Mark Spiegler, um, you know, have, have really been very helpful in helping us redefine how we think about a booth, um, how you think about the zones on a booth, how you think about layering a booth, how you think about introducing people in to a booth and, and, and kind of engaging them on the booth. I think it's a very, very different skill set. Okay. And you have a much shorter amount of time to get their attention. Right. I mean, if you're at a gallery making a show, you are not having 70, 65 or 75,000 people coming through in a five-day period. And you know your space. I mean, the spaces at fairs change yeah. every season. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, at, at the Armory, you've got 70,000 people coming through in five days, 100-odd booths. You've got to get somebody's attention in a very, very short span of time. Otherwise, they're off to the next thing. Sure. You know, the artist John Baldessari has a great quote uh, where, where he says that an artist walking into an art fair is not unlike a teenager walking in on his parents having sex. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. John, actually, who's a great friend, um, his birthday is June the 17th and my birthday is June the 16th. And my birthday is June the 14th. Oh, wow. All Geminis. <laughs> and John, um, uh, it always made me laugh because... Uh, John would come to Basel every year and we're right opposite May 36 with Victor Giesler who's a great friend and a wonderful dealer and um, on, on I would be celebrating my birthday at an art fair which, which frankly wasn't a huge amount of fun Sure. Um, uh, every year and I, every June the 17th I'd see John sitting on Victor's booth opposite and every year I'd walk over and we'd share a glass of champagne and uh, I'd say and John would say the same thing to me every year. It's a slightly uh, more raunchier version of your story. He'd say, you know, art, art fairs are a terrible place for an artist. I feel like a, I feel like a nun in a whorehouse. <laughs> yeah. And I'd say, yeah, but John, you come every year. So, you know. <laughs> right, there's a strange paradox there. Yeah, there's a we, strange we, paradox. We, we have uh, incredible anxiety as artists coming to these places. It's overwhelming, yet we still show up. Yeah, but, you know, look, there are certain artists for whom it, just is awful and it would be torture uh, and there's there there are certain artists like john who i think took a perverse takes a perverse pleasure from it uh, and are, are good at it and there are artists who are perfectly capable to swim in these waters and others that don't swim in them so well uh, and let's not forget something else as well i mean artists are collectors too this is true and they come to art fairs and they buy I mean, one of my artists buys more art at art fairs than most of my clients do. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I'm sure if he didn't turn up, there'd be a lot of very disappointed dealers in the room. So uh, yeah, there's lots of different ways of swimming through an art fair. Sure. Uh, let's shift gears and talk about collecting. I know you gave a, a panel discussion yesterday uh, on the subject, and you also have your own podcast called Collect Wisely, where yep. you dive deep into the yep. subject of collecting. How has collecting changed over the past 10, 15, 20 years from your point of view? It, it's, you know, it's like everything else. It's, it's, it's unrecognizable. Uh, and um, I was on a panel, I wasn't doing it alone yesterday with, with four fantastic colleagues and a moderator. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I, I like to try and explain to people is that when I started as, as a young dealer 30 years ago, it was a bit like a sort of very quiet stream meandering through a field, the art world. And now it's like trying to cross the Orinoco in, fl in full flood and get survive to get to the other side. It's a vast raging river. It's just a, a completely different place and everything has changed about it. And the, probably the biggest, the two biggest changes are the amount of money 
that's involved now, which is enormous. Um, and the speed at which we're all moving because of the internet and because of uh, you know Twitter and Instagram etc and those those are two immense uh, adjustments that one has to make but of course the challenge is uh, to be up to the change and not to be phased by it or or in, made insecure by it or sit around moaning about it and because then you realize god I've become an old fogey and I'm not up to the challenge. But I, I'm, I totally love it. I'm constantly kind of entertained and engaged and challenged by it. And I think my kids being in the gallery are a large part of that success. Yeah, I'm sure that, that provides a certain amount of energy. Yeah, and they can also explain to me how to actually send something out on email. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another thing that you said in, in the panel from yesterday that I thought was worth kind of going back into was uh, you mentioned something about the art market being in sort of an, an existential crisis. Yeah. And you and you paralleled that to the geopolitical crisis, even an environmental crisis. Absolutely. Talk about that a little bit. Look, I, I think the art world is not uh, a bracketed, exclusive enclave that is not connected to the real world. We are part of the real world. and We're a tiny little part of it. Um, but we are subject to all the same pressures and vicissitudes that we're all experiencing now, both in the political realm, in the ecological realm. Uh, and I think that we, as a species, you know, it sounds very grand, but I think as a species, we're really in the, the last few moments of the game here if we don't address the impending, the looming ecological crisis we've created and that we're subjecting ourselves and our offspring to. Um, and future generations. And I, I really don't think the art world's that different. The inequities that exist in the art world now are so profound. You know what, we're not talking about 99%, 1%. That, that debate's long gone. Sure. We're talking about a fraction of 1% controlling, you know, our cultural capital in a way that a lot of us are starting to feel excluded from. Uh, and and upset by and uh, disillusioned by and that was the whole point of starting collect wisely it was trying to put something back into the world that was positive it's about collecting it's about the imperatives for collecting why we care about art and artists why we care about the art world why the art world is important to us how it sustains us how it feeds us how it nurtures us and how consistently throughout our human history culturally um, the model of the way that we've made things and made our marks in the world has informed who we are uh, as sentient beings. And you just can't sweep that away uh, in, in the blink of an eyelid and, and make it only about how much something's worth. Sure. And, and so it's very much about trying to engender that conversation. Yeah, and we're talking about value systems here, kind yeah. of reprioritizing our value systems. Well, not, not reprioritizing them necessarily, but recognizing that uh, you know, th the world's a very plural place. There are lots of different art worlds. Um, you know, it is absolutely possible to be in the world where uh, Leonardo da Vinci sells for $165 million and um, a young artist needs to be supported in his studio uh, and you can buy work for 100 bucks or go on the internet. Right. But, but the basic imperative is the same. If, if da Vinci hadn't have had a patron um, in, in the Renaissance, we wouldn't have that painting right now. And if we aren't going to be patrons to our young artists through studio visits, through galleries, through art fairs, etc., 
we won't have our future Leonardo da Vinci's. This is true. I mean, we have to take care of, 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 of the artists and make sure that they're able to contribute to culture in the ways that they need to. Well, also, you know, we're talking a little earlier about uh, how the art world changed. There is an enormous nostalgia amongst young artists. They come and talk to me all the time because I'm a sort of product of the 60s in a way. And they come and talk to me all the time about how amazing it must have been to have been around the art world in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and how much freer the artists were because there was no money involved. And they are A, right, and B, extremely nostalgic for it. But you can't go back, you've got to go forward. But I think really all we're arguing for is that there has to be a, a very plural set of binary models by which, you know, a, an artwork by a living artist can sell for $20 million, and that's fine, but we should be sustaining a lot more artists at a much lower value, and that $20 million could go in other directions very, very well. And to that point, I said on the panel yesterday that, you know, one of the, I think one of the great women of the art world, without any question, Agnes Gund, recently sold a very important work and has given, uh, you know, a significant amount of money to, to support, uh, you know, social work on changing uh, the status of our legal system with regard to incarceration. Mm -hmm. And I heard about another collector who had sold a painting for $80 million and was plowing that money back into um, to initiatives in Africa. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, think, I think the balance is slightly tipping at the moment. Sure, sure. And I think we're into an area, we're starting to get into an area and I think millennials understand this much better than the rest of us, where the value added to a situation is going to come from your ability, willingness, and attention to, philanth to, to philanthropy, but in a meaningful way, not when you've become Bill Gates and made a vast fortune, but in everyday life. That's well said. Uh, let's put art down for a second. A friend we have in common informed me that you toured with Led Zeppelin. No, that's not. Is well, that not true? That, no, no. I, I did work. I did work with a lot of. No, I didn't. I'm playing a musical instrument. Okay. I I did uh, work with a lot of bands when I was very young. I left home when I was 13, and it was the equivalent in the 60s uh, of sort of running away and going to you know to the circus. In the 30s, you've run away and gone to the circus, but in the 60s, you know, it was uh, you went and worked with bands. And I did work with a whole load of bands, and that is in part true. What what sorts of work did you do with the bands? Were I you was a roadie. A roadie? Yeah, so you and were a sound engineer. Excellent. Yeah. Are there any memorable stories or, or like bands you want to talk about from that moment? Well, yeah, I mean, there's so many. I'm sure I there's endless stories. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't do it on air because I'll probably get arrested. <laughs> um, but uh, notable individuals, yeah, there were a bunch, you know, absolute bunch of maniacs. Um, but there was a band called The Crazy World of Arthur Brown, and Arthur Brown was... Uh, was uh, made made Keith Moon look normal, um, but there were there were some moments, and of course, you know, it was uh, a, a a period when um, the drugs were different, and it was pre-AIDS, so uh, it was it was quite a fun environment. Let's shift back towards your relationship with artists, uh, particularly during studio visits. When I have a chance to sit down with a gallerist, I'm always curious to hear what they look for during studio visits. Uh, do they want to see a ton of work? Do they want to see works in progress? Uh, what sorts of conversations do you have? How do you like to, to, to find yourself in an artist's studio? Well, of course, 
you know it's 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 the biggest privilege of all to be it's the inner sanctum it's like being invited into the uh into the in, into the sacristy um uh i think what i want I, I i firstly i love doing it it's my favorite thing that i do is to be in the studio with the artists i think what i want from it is that i want when i leave the studio um i don't go into the studio with any preconceptions looking for something when I leave a studio, I want the artist to uh, to think, my God, that was the best studio visit I've ever had. I don't go looking for something. I want to make sure that I give something. Yeah. And I want the experience for the artist to be enriching. And I want them to believe, I hope, feel like the person that just left the studio is the best studio visit they ever had. It was the most intense, the most challenging, and the most stimulating and that you know that person really knows their stuff and was having fun mm -hmm. and that's what i want from the studio visit i think i'm much better at giving christmas gifts than i'm at receiving them i always get rather embarrassed so it's not but it's not necessarily about what i get it's about what i leave behind sure well said uh let's talk a little bit about technology particularly how we consume images in culture these days i mean just walking around the fair we see everyone Taking, looking into artwork, taking a quick picture, moving on. Mm. Um, I know, I want to believe there's there's people out there that want to slow things down. Um, talk about how technology is is maybe changing how we consume these things. How you see, you know, images popping up in Instagram and online, mm. if they're affecting how we how we look at a artwork in real time. Uh, I mean, you know, one of my co-panelists yesterday, Dan Salek, uh, who's also a great friend. Um, we did a panel in Miami uh, in December and Dan used this term slow art, which I think is a wonderful concept. Almost he's like slow food. Yeah, it's yeah. like slow food. He's invented this and I'm giving him full credit for it. And, and, I, th and, I, and I think it's a brilliant idea. Uh, you know, I think our lives have sped up to the point where we're consuming information uh, at an unprecedented rate in our cultural history. And... Um, the pendulum always swings too far one way and then it swings back the other way and, and it keeps moving. Uh, it's actually quite refreshing at the moment to increasingly be talking to people who are not on Instagram or who are removing themselves from Facebook for various uh, social and cultural concerns. Um, and I've got nothing against them. It's just that I think that art should occupy a different function for us and service for us. And I, you know, everybody 10 years ago would have talked about how, you know, going to an art fair and seeing something was the wrong thing to do because you'd make a decision in haste and then you'd regret it. Well, my goodness, if that was then and we're now in the Instagram age, how many, how much faster and how many more bad decisions are we making? <laughs> yeah. Look, art, you, you know, if you're a serious collector, you have to educate your eye. You've got to spend time in front of the object. You've got you've got to slow down and really absorb it. And art fairs are a fabulous crib sheet mm -hmm. um, for seeing a lot of uh, seeing a lot of material in a very short period of time. All in one and place. Doing a lot of research yeah. in one place and sometimes making decisions, but really coming away with a vast treasure trove of information. And then you should do your homework and then you should absorb it and then you should make decisions. And and I think, you know, as I said earlier, it's about educating collectors and we'll we'll have better educated collectors if we do that. Right. So we're sitting here at the uh, 2019 Armory Show. By my count, there's over 200 galleries here. 
you have any suggestions for uh, people as they view the fair in terms of that pace? How Any tips for not becoming too overwhelmed too quickly? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like going to a museum, isn't it? I think <clears throat> when, I, when I went to a museum when I was 18 years old, um, or 16 or something, I suppose I would have gone into the museum and I'd have stood in front of every single art object in the museum for the same period of time, assuming that I had to see everything and, I, and uh, to educate myself. And I think as one gets a little bit more sophisticated about it, one edits. I mean, I think you have to be a good editor. Yeah. Uh, and I think you have, to, you have to know your eye, you have to be a good editor, and the best way to do it, in my opinion, is get the, the floor plan, uh, be methodical. I mean, I'm really giving you, like, you know, this is very basic stuff, sure, right? Sure. Get the floor plan, be methodical, tick all the booths off, go through very quickly once, uh, and make a note of where things caught your eye or where things, uh, you know, you felt a resonance from a particular booth or an, uh, an artwork or a dealer, and go back and, and speak to that dealer more fully. Go back and look at that work more carefully. Ask for further information. But try and act more like an editor than a consumer and end up with four, five, six booths that you're really interested in and take it from there. It sounds like come in with a plan and a strategy. Yeah, because otherwise, you know, it could be incredibly overwhelming. I think to a no small extent, art fairs exist because galleries for decades did a horrible job of, of welcoming people to come into their galleries. Uh, and you know, a lot of people felt excluded from going from gallery visiting because they were very intimidated by it. Sure. Here, you know, but let's remember, galleries you don't have to pay to go into. But there is this sort of inverse notion that here, if you pay your ticket and you come in, you have a right to be here, and you have a, you know you have reasonable expectations that you should be taken seriously. So I think people feel more enfranchised at an art fair. Um, and I think that you know they should use that, and that galleries should be doing a much better job of welcoming them in and making them feel welcome, so that we do have a more educated audience and a, a repeat audience. Yeah, it is really nice, uh, you know, just looking over over across the way here, the flow of people, the openness. Uh, it's not as closed off, so that sort of way of moving through the fair is quite nice. Yeah, and you can't get trapped as easily if you, you know, if you're in front of a horrible artwork or a with a really boring dealer who's explaining their entire life history to you. You know, there'll be something that distracts you out the corner of your eye. You can escape. <laughs> there you go. What was the last great piece of culture that you saw or read or heard that you know dropped you to your knees? You had a visceral, emotional response to. Does anything come to mind? You know, it happens all the time. Um, here at the Armory, I found two. Two. I, I'm my my benchmark is always going through and looking for things that I really would love to take home that I can't sure. live without. And there, there always have to be some. And here at the Armory, I found a few things I'd really love to take home. And, you know, as I said earlier, dealers are collectors too. Mm -hmm. So who knows? I might be going off to spend some money any minute now. Um, but, uh, you know, I read a lot. So literature is incredibly important to James me. James Joyce, I hear. Uh, I... I <laughs> I did read James Joyce a lot, actually, starting when I was 13. You, a, you collect his uh, first editions, no? I, we formed a very large collection of Joyce material, which took 25 years to assemble. It was probably one of the most important collections in private hands in the world. And uh, Mary, my wife, and I gave it to the Morgan Library uh, last year. And um, they will make far better use of it than, than I would having it in my house or purview. 
but it was a very difficult decision to 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 come by because I felt I was far too young to to, to do that. But uh, I know it's the right thing to do, and and the and you know so literature is very important to me, um, and I read I read for work because I'm reading a lot of sort of technical texts if you like and writings. Um, I also like to read sort of stuff that uh, you know is very undemanding, and then I read a sort of fair amount of philosophy and art history. I recently finished a wonderful book by Essie Dugian called uh, Washington Black, which I thought was a wonderful, wonderful novel. Everybody on the planet should go and see the Hilma Af Klimt show at the Guggenheim right now. I think that's an extraordinary show and a real revelation uh, and uh, ex- incredibly accessible in many ways as well, mm. but also very mystical. And the Bruce Nauman retrospective at MoMA, which just shut, which was at MoMA and MoMA PS1, as much as I thought I knew and have known Bruce's work for over 40 years and he's an artist I revere and venerate, I thought that was an extraordinary show, uh, a binary show in two places that was revelatory. And, and that show dropped me to my knees because I realized what an absolute genius he is. Yeah, agreed. Uh, we're, we're nearing the end. Is there a dream project you have in your mind, something you'd love to realize, something on the horizon? Yeah, I'd love to write a novel. Um, but I, I know I'd be awfully bad at it. I, my wife says I'm a frustrated architect, but I've managed to slate that particular or, or, or solve that particular itch by building a number of buildings uh, in collaboration with the great architect Toshiko Mori, who has uh, indulged my uh, annoying architectural pretensions. <laughs> um, I'd love to write a great novel. I, I, I think nobody's written a great novel about the art world other than um, Ian Pierce. Uh, who wrote an incredible, uh, incredible book called *The Portrait*, which I would recommend to to anybody who's interested. I think universally, films made about the art world are terrible and embarrassing, and uh, most writing about the art world gets it wrong. I'm not sure I'd write a novel about the art world, but I would love to write a credible novel because I think I revere writers, um, Colm Toybin, the great novelist and writer of *Brooklyn*, amongst many other things, is a friend and. I just, and Salman Rushdie, and I, I just admire them so much. Uh, I'd love to think that I, I could even approach doing what they do in a half-credible way. Sure, excellent. Well, Sean, thanks for sitting down with me. It was a real pleasure to speak with you oh, and delightful. to hear your thoughts on, uh, on, on the art world and your gallery and the fair. And uh, It's nice to be interviewed because I'm normally on the other side of the microphone. I'm, I'm For the podcast with Collect Wisely, I'm asking people questions. Yeah. So, it's actually nice to have the tables turned on me and to feel a bit challenged by it. So it's, Excellent. it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. We've made it to the end. A quick reminder that Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. Help support and sustain this project by making a donation online at deepcolorpodcast.com. You can also learn more about each contributing artist, find links to their online portfolios, and access the archive of past recordings. Be sure to share this project within your community and subscribe and rate in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for listening and check back soon for a new episode.